Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of July 8th, 2019. On the show today, I hear an interesting tidbit about Disney ticket prices. Jim talks about how Galaxy's Edge may affect the future of immersive lands in Disney's theme parks. Plus, we do the news, and at the end of the show, Bandcamp subscribers hear the story of my condemned apartment. But first, let's bring in the man who observes that the Roman numeral for five is half of the Roman numeral for ten. One Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Little known fact, Len, when Walt Disney Productions was exploring the idea of doing a sequel to 1946's Song of the South, the studio was going to steer clear of the original post-Civil War setting, and instead, the motion picture was going to explore Uncle Remus's relationship with his brother Romulus. Oh, yes, yes. Ch- children of the uh, of the Wolf. There we go. Yes, yes it would... <laughs> And with the help of kindly Beowulf, that they were going to found the city of Rome. <laughs> kind of going for a different tone. I, I believe from reading the script, there was a scene where Uncle R- Romulus stood in the center of the Colosseum, waving a sword about going, are you not entertained? <laughs> He'd do it with a Southern accent. It'd be, y'all entertained? <laughs> there we go. My mistake. Okay. <laughs> I think a take on this would be, uh, a Southern take on this would be super, super entertaining. There you go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Megan O and S and Adrian A and the longtime subscribers, Paul V, Bayona and Matt M. Not household names, but they do the fish choreography at the Seas Pavilion, making sure that the dolphins, stingrays and fish all swing by at exactly the right time each day. So the next time you see a school of fish in perfect formation, that's the work of these fine folks, especially if the dolphins are doing jazz fins. That's all probably Bayona. All right, Jim, let's, uh, let's do the news real quick. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim? I was in the Animal Kingdom on July 4th. The heat index was 110 degrees. And you know that park always feels a little hotter. And I mentioned this, Jim, because I was on the lookout for a new popcorn bucket Mm -hmm. shaped like a drum, but I couldn't find it. Apparently, the park doesn't sell a lot of popcorn when it's hot. Go figure, Lynn. Who who knew? That and when the drums melt, it's kind of counter... (laughs) They just bring out regular ears of corn and they pop spontaneously because of the heat. There we go. It was warm. But, uh, But speaking of... The Animal Kingdom, Jim, news is that the show Up, A Great Bird Adventure, is closing in September for a script refresh. Remember, folks, this is the show that replaced Flights of Wonder last year. I reviewed it for the unofficial guide and said that the script was slow and needed more birds. Jim, what's Disney thinking here? This is going to be the third tweak, isn't it? Because the show was open for a while and they actually did a rewrite or a, a relatively light rewrite. This has always been a kind of problematic show because it's basically, oh, and here's another bird. Oh, and here's another bird. And the hope was by folding in Russell and Doug from Up that this would make the show that much more entertaining for kids. Len, you've been to this. You've seen the number of walkouts. And in fact, this is a really problematic show for walkouts because when people get up and leave, it actually disturbs the birds. The birds, right? Yeah, yeah. you're not supposed to do it. Yeah. yeah so, but you, but you can't tell, you can't all guess that they're stuck there. That's just not the. Uh, no, it's not a good show. No. And I'm told this is the last chance for the up overlay, and if <laughs> the last seed, the last straw for the birds, if you will. Disney now through the Fox acquisition does have 
a set of characters from the Rio films. Oh, right. The parrots and the, yeah. or the, are they macaws? Yeah. Because macaws. There we go. The thinking is, okay, we'll make one more stab at this. We'll see if we can make the show work. And then if you think about Kevin, that's been a smash hit with guests. Oh, Kevin? Kevin's a hit? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, you know, they bring him out and everyone wants to get their picture taken with them more to the point they want to get video they can share on their phone. So that's been hugely successful. Okay. The Russell and Doug, you know, up the Great Bird Adventure, much <laughs> less so. Yeah, the show is one of the lowest rated things in Walt Disney World. It's considered below average by every age group we uh, mm. we survey. So almost nowhere to go, but <laughs> up <laughs> from... Uh, from that, Jim, I, I think when we were, that was horrible. Yeah, that no, was no, no, no. Wonderful dad joke. Keep moving. Keep moving. All right. Uh, you know. I think one of the things that, that I noticed that was wrong with the show is it takes too long to introduce the birds mm -hmm. into the show. Like in the, in the current script, there's this long elaborate talk about how the narrator found this village and came to love it, et cetera, et cetera. And I think at this point, and I'm willing to put a chicken dinner on this, Jim, mm -hmm. that the new show is going to introduce the birds much, much sooner in the script. It'll be bird forward, if you will. It's sort of like, you know, menus with vegetarian food is, are now considered plant-forward. This will be bird-forward, Jim. I'm More birds it. very, very soon in the, uh, in the script. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to bet on that. Okay. Also, Jim, I was uh, spent the night at Epcot on July 4th for the fireworks. Uh, shout out to all of the cast members who handled the crowds really, really well. When I, uh, when I got to Epcot, I went through the International Gateway. Apparently, the Magic Band scanners were down. Ooh. So they were trying to scan everyone by hand. And I swear, Jim, it was like, are you wearing a magic band? Yes. Come on in. Mm. That was the scanning. <laughs> Do you have a, like a, an elaborate wristwatch, a swatch that looks like a magic band? Come on in. Just keep wow. going, folks. Just, the line actually went from the International Gateway mm. down past the Friendship Boats and past the new area for the Skyliner entrance. That's how long the line was to get into the park. So I think they were just like, yep, 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 yep. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay. So anyway, it was fine. Speaking of Epcot, we finally have an official information on what's happening in the future world redo. It looks like the Fountain of Nations, Innovations East, the Colortopia attraction, and the Nanu's break room are scheduled to close on September 8th this year. Electric Umbrella closes later on in this year. Mouse Gear closes and moves to a temporary home. Let me just stop there. Where are they going to move something as big as Mouse Gear, Jim? You remember us having that conversation about Canada last week? Oh. They're looking for covered retail space. That's pretty much what we're talking about. Mouse Gear is this theme park's equivalent of the Emporium. It's like the Emporium. Yeah, yeah it's, the, it's the big thing, yeah. They are very hesitant to shut down that sort of revenue stream. Especially yeah. with Bob Chapek, the head of products, parks, and experiences. So yeah, he, he takes he takes uh, two or three strikes yeah. when uh, Mesquite closed. I was I was there yesterday. I walked I walked through it. It was uh, it was fantastic. Mm -hmm. They've completely redone it. They've moved a lot of stuff around. It feels much more open. They've got a, I think a bigger selection of stuff. Just in time to close. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of the things that's part of this is the Starbucks at Fountain View also closing. And again, oh, that's closing too. Yeah. And, that's moving to a temporary location, but they haven't said, said where yet. But again, same thing. If you want to talk about a ridiculously strong revenue stream, don't shut down people with their Starbucks. So no, they have to do that. And that has to be sort of, so let's think about that. It has to be sort of fairly early in the park mm -hmm. walking experience and probably on the right hand side where people can get to it because that's go. where they're going to walk. In there them. you go. I wonder if they'll move it to, um, I would say normally the character spot, but the character spot's also, also closing mm -hmm. on September 8th too. So somewhere on the right side of the park, uh, you, 
they could have t- put up temporary stands where they had the old Leave a Legacy tiles because that whole space is open oh, right now with nothing oh, there. Lynn, go buy a lottery ticket. That's how early they are looking. Oh, is, so, so that's interesting. So if, if you notice that, they, they actually, if you're facing Spaceship Earth from the entrance, mm-hmm. they actually cleared out the right-hand side we go. of the Leave a Legacy monument. Oh, you think you put it there? Yeah, it's wide open. Right. Wide open right there. Mm-hmm. On the other side of this... It's all about, from the moment you come out from under Spaceship Earth, having walked uphill, the party starts. This whole area is now going to be about whatever festival is being celebrated around World Showcase Lagoon. This is where the show starts that much earlier. You are surrounded by outdoor kitchens. You've got your beer garden. And the belief is that in the long term, it's going to help the store that's coming in behind Mouse Gear. It's going to help everything from pin sales on forward. Ah, interesting. All right, what else is going to happen? Uh, Art of Disney's moving to a new location. It's Heritage Manor that's over in American Adventure. Yeah, they're not happy about that. They honestly believe that they're going to lose sales from the notion of A, it's that deep in the park, and B, the folks who I have to carry this back is like, no, 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 we can do this to your hotel. And it's, yeah. but it's going to be just enough of an incentive like, nah. I think uh, the Art of Disney operating where it is at the entrance of the park, you get people who are either super excited to be going into Epcot or mm-hmm. very happy with their day as they're leaving, more willing to pick stuff up. But if you think about where the, where you are mm-hmm. and where the American Adventure is, you're typically there in the hottest part of the day yeah. after you've trekked mm-hmm. a few miles. Yeah, I mean, it, it could definitely impact sales. If it were me and I were running you know, the Art of Disney, it's like painting and this two liter of cold water. <laughs> Here's a refreshing shower while you consider this artwork. There you go. <laughs> also, uh, speaking of refreshing, uh, Club Cool is going to close. Disney said it's going to be relocated, but hasn't said where yet. I think the problem that they're going to face here is if they want to keep all of, any of these things in future world mm-hmm. with everything that's closed, it's, it's basically musical chairs. Yeah. But you're going to see a number of temporary structures. You're going to see these things move around. Late 2019 and and for the bulk of 2020, it's going to be tough getting in and out of this park from the parking lot. Yeah. On the other side, it'll be great when this is all done. Yeah. You'll have this amazing new light space with all sorts of fun new features. But yeah, we're we're facing roughly a year and a half of misery. That's what I think. So I mean, a year year and a half, maybe two years of uh, of build. It'll be ready sometime during the uh, the fiftieth. That's it. But it'll be much more green, much more open, mm-hmm. more water features. So it'll be cooler too, yep. which I think will help. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it'll be good. Uh, so one more thing, the character spot's closing on September 8th too. Some characters are moving around. Minnie Mouse goes to the World Showcase gazebo. Where is that? Is that between those two shops that sort of bookend? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's I, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Right between the two things. Mm-hmm. And then Daisy Duck moves to the American Adventure, making Goofy to Imagination. Mm-hmm. So the Imagination Pavilion needs a draw. That'll be good. Joy and Baymax, TBD. So we'll see what happens. It could go to Japan. Yeah. Although Japan has so much construction going on. Whatever moves people around the lagoon, they'll do. So Exactly. Get into the back of the park. Mm-hmm. Ah, so that's interesting. So we'll see, we'll keep an eye out on that and uh, provide updates as we uh, as we know them. But yeah, a big, uh, big round of musical chairs coming up in Future World. All right, Jim, one more thing. Uh, so my uh, my statistician, Steve Bloom, did a, an interesting analysis last week about Disney ticket prices. And I was mentioning it to a friend of mine who, let's say, is in the ticket business mm. and leave it at that. And uh, Steve's analysis uh, looked at how much the ticket prices are going up by month. 
with the latest round of price increases. So it looks like, uh, for example, in uh, I'll just pick a, a month here at random. For May of 2019, the average ticket price was just under $122. May of next year, it's a little bit over $125, which is a $3.74 increase or 3.1%. And if you look at the other months, they range in changes from a decrease of half a percent in April to that increase of 3.1% in May. Most of the months change by around 2.2%, which is basically inflation. But it's really interesting because uh, like September, the prices only went up 1%, whereas in October, they went up 2.5%, and in August, they went up 2.5%. So it looks like what Disney's trying to, to say here is, don't come in August, don't come in October, come in September instead. If you think about you know Disney's stated intention of using ticket prices to try and level out attendance, the months where the prices are rising the least are April, September, and November. And the prices, the months where prices are increasing the most are May, June, August, and October. And those seem to be the traditionally busier months too. So again, Disney looks to be sending a signal saying, don't go during these months and go during these months. But the other interesting thing was I was talking about this with my friend who knows a lot of things about Disney tickets. And what they said was, that not with this last price increase, but the one with the one before that, the big one, mm-hmm. Disney thinks they finally sort of hit the right balance of supply and demand around ticket prices and visitation. So they think that they've spread out people through their calendar as much as they could. And then this last price increase was basically just an inflation adjust, adjustment. And not coincidentally, the 2.2% average mm-hmm. price increase on this last one is basically what US inflation has been over the last year. So that kind of makes sense. Okay. That sort of incremental cost increase, really enough to sort of divert people to other months? Well, remember, not this one, but the one before that was the big one. This is and true. that's the one where Disney said, this is true. okay, with this price increase, we think we've got everything done. Because okay. that was, remember, those are, some of those price increases were 7 or 8%. Mm. Okay. It's this one that was basically inflation with maybe slight nudges in certain months. Okay. All right. But that's interesting. So, um, you know, the, the Disney thinks now that they've basically hit the right sort of balance throughout the year. That's good to know. The other thing that, uh, that Steve noticed was that in 2019, there were five price categories for ticket prices, mm. 109, 117, 125, 139, and 159. In 2020, there are seven ticket price categories. So the same 109, there's a new $112 mm-hmm. price level, and there are five dates on that in 2020. There's uh, 121, there's uh, 128. 135, and then the same 139, 159. So in the middle part of the year, or the middle part of the attendance patterns, Disney's added, uh, looks like, two new price tiers. Hmm. And they changed the 125 to uh, to 128. Wow. Okay. I'm just fascinated when it's a place like Walt Disney World where it's like the typical family is you have to buy the plane tickets, you have to buy the hotel package. and yeah. This sort of thing, I really question it. it is this enough to woof well you know let's avoid october let's go november just talking about how i've been uh, walking around in you know late june and july mm-hmm. it's remarkably not i'm not gonna say slow mm-hmm. but the crowds are definitely moderated on sunday i was in epcot and again with the heat index it was literally 110 degrees mm-hmm. it was warm but i was there you know three o'clock in the afternoon when world showcase should be relatively busy mm-hmm. and it was dead i mean you could there were points where you could stand in japan and look left and right and count the number of people that you saw. Wow. It felt really good. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing was when I wa- we walked to Future World, Laurel and I uh, walked to Future World, and Spaceship Earth's 
posted wait time was 45 minutes. But again, you could count the number of people in line, mm-hmm. you know, and it, maybe there were 40 or 50. So I'm like, let's, you know, let's get in line and time this. And the, the actual wait time was seven minutes because we didn't have a fast pass mm-hmm. for it. So that was not, the posted wait time wasn't, uh, wasn't very accurate, but crowds were pretty good. Yesterday, of course, 4th of July, super packed everywhere. But I think overall, yeah, I mean, summer crowds are definitely lower than they've been. And speaking of summer crowds, James, let's talk about Disneyland for a second. Yeah. So <laughs> this is going to be the, your main topic after our commercial break. Mm-hmm. But let me, just, let me just highlight this by saying this. Since Galaxy's Edge is op- opened, we've noticed some low attendance. So we, we measured Disneyland attendance on a 1 to 10 scale, 1 being the lowest attended day, 10 being the busiest. Since Galaxy's Edge is opened, Disneyland has been a 1 crowd level for 19 uh, of those days. No day has been higher than a three until the 4th of July. To put that in perspective, in all of 2018, all of 2018, there were 15 days rated one. We've already seen 19 in the last month. So Disneyland has had over a year's worth of lowest attendance days in the last month since Star Wars Galaxy's Edge opened. And DCA is similar. DCA has had 18 days rated one since Galaxy's Edge had opened. No day higher than a three except for the 4th of July. Jim, after we do our commercial break, you're going to come in and talk about how this is affecting the future of immersive lands in Disney's theme parks. Yeah, though, have you seen the national ad that Disney has bought for Galaxy's Edge, the one with the... Um, no, I haven't. It's a mother, father, little girl, and they're standing in front of the Millennium Falcon, and the little girl says, I've been waiting my whole life to do this, and... Then the next thing you see is the father and the daughter, and they're both in the pilot position. And the dad sort of smiles at the little girl, and she's the one who punches it, and they go to light speed. But <laughs> it was Alice that actually noticed that in the image of the small print that literally said, subject to capacity, access to park attractions and experiences may be restricted due to capacity. So there's still this drumbeat of if you want to go it's still you got to be ready we, we may have to hold you back yeah. i think they they only used the virtual queue boarding system one day right yeah. and they may have used it on fourth of july too but they only use it that first day and then after that it was they walk up and uh, and go into the land from what i understand yeah they're still having the the access issues with olga's cantina and you know of course savvy's salvage and all that but yeah i know they'll eventually sort this out but there is a certain number of people at Disney who are very stressed right about now because this was not what this summer was supposed to look like, especially in Anaheim. All right, so uh, let's talk more about that and the implications for it right after our commercial break. We'll be right back. Oops. All right, Jim, we were uh, talking before the break about how uh, attendance at Galaxy's Edge might affect the future of immersive lands. Mm-hmm in Disney's theme parks. Why don't you uh, why don't you take us through that? Okay. Let's start with today. The today show got posted on July 8th and that's actually mm-hmm. the 10th anniversary of the groundbreaking of Cars Land out in California. When Disney initially announced they were going to redo be redoing DCA, that was on October 17, 2007. So by the time they got around to breaking ground on Cars Land, mm-hmm. That was a year and nine months late. It took that long to for that part of it to go forward. And then from the time they broke ground to the times that the very first guest could come through the door was two years and 11 months. So three years, 11 months. So four and a half years. Yeah. Basically get it all done. Okay. You got to remember this is a, a working theme park. You got to work around that. And you did have a number of attractions open in between that. You know, we had Midway Mania open June 2008. World of Color debuts out in Paradise Bay June of 2010. And... 
We even had the Little Mermaid ride open in June of 2011. But again, you're right. Four years and eight months, to be exact, from announcement okay. to finish of the project. Now, let's pivot to New Fantasyland. Gets announced in September of 2009 at the D23 Expo. 11-acre addition to Fantasyland at the park. They don't get started with construction till April 2010. That's when it... Six months later. Yeah. Or seven months later. Yeah. Okay. So they that's when they, they get that crane in there and move the 120-ton tree from Pooh's thoughtful spot across the way. January 2011, we get our revised plan for Fantasyland. Let me just say, Jim, as someone who's gone, gone through many a home remodel, mm -hmm. there's nothing like a mid-remodel change in direction <laughs> <laughs> to increase your costs in the timeline. That's exactly what you want to oh, do. Oh, yeah. And, and that's exactly. Start making changes. Yeah. That's exactly what happened here. We had our Sleeping Beauty Cinderella meet and greet right in the park. Gets pulled for Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. And as a direct result, now New Fantasyland has to open in four different phases. June of 2012, we get Storybook Cyprus. That was the least rethemed of the areas, the, right? Basically, the, the attractions that existed there still existed. Okay, so you recovered the couch. Okay, you know, I mean... That <laughs> Meet the old boss. There we go. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meet the new elephant, same as the old <laughs> elephant. All right. Okay. December 2012, we get Enchanted Tales with Belle, Gaston's Tavern, the Beer Guest Restaurant, Bonjour gifts and the end of the Sea Little Mermaid thing. All right, so we get two attractions, a restaurant and a half, mm -hmm. and a gift shop. This is the back part of, of New Fantasyland. This was the big thing. We were all excited to see this. Okay, yeah. go ahead. And then September 2013, we get Princess Fairy Tale Hall, uh, which replaces Snow White Adventure. Oh, I forgot about that as a phase. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Okay, I remember that now. All and right. then final, final chunk of it, May 2014, Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. If you do the math here, exact same thing. It's four years and eight months, just like hmm. the DCA redo. I'm sensing a pattern here, James. So you have WDI works on two immersive lands starting in the late 2000s into the mid 2000s. September of 2011, we get the news mm -hmm. that Disney has acquired the theme park rights to Avatar. So it's like, okay, you've learned all of these lessons from doing these two earlier immersive lands. So things are going to pick up yeah. speeds. You're going to get better at this, right? And not not for nothing, but uh, the previous two plus Avatar weren't sort of greenfield buildouts. They were taking existing park infrastructure and redoing them. So third project, Pandora, is exactly like the first two. Mm -hmm. They should basically have a checklist at this point that says start here and end here. Ab okay, absolutely. All right. So they they announce right from the get go that groundbreak will happen in 2013. Not really. It gets pushed to January 2014. It takes them from September of 2011 to January of 2014 just to break ground. Okay, what happens in two and a half years? This is mostly James Cameron coupled with Joe Rohde trying to make Avatar fit with Disney's Animal Kingdom. And Cameron was doing a number of documentaries that involved him being in a submersible at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, not available for Skype calls. <laughs> right. is, that, is that what you're saying? There we go. Okay. <laughs> so if you take the 27 months that passed between Disney announced they got the theme park rights to when they break ground, and then the construction phase of three years and four months, Len, it took five years and eight months for Avatar. This is what's known in project management circles as going in the wrong direction. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, okay, pivot quick to Universal and Harry Potter. They begin negotiations with Warner Brothers Consumer Products in April of 2007. 
They announced at the very end of May that they've acquired the theme park rights. September 2009, they revealed their plans for a theme park within a theme park, The Wizarding World of Harry Potter, uh, 20 acres. They take two, they do sort of a storybook circus thing. They they take two attractions that are already there and repurpose them, the Flying Unicorn and Dueling Dragons, and there's one sure. brand new ride, Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey. But that thing okay. soft opens May 2010 and is open to the public by June 18, 2010. Okay, so three years from announcement to soft open, or three years and a month to official open. Yeah. Now, uh, contrast this with Disney announcing in October of 2012 that for $4 billion, they're getting Lucasfilm. It's not until April of 2016, three years and six months, Len, that they finally break ground on Star Wars land. I mean, to be fair, Jim, they acquire the Star Wars franchise, mm-hmm. and it takes them a while to figure out, do people really want rides <laughs> based on this franchise? What, what what does one do with, I mean, what do you, uh, do we do we use it? Do we not use it? Uh, who knows? Disney has had Star Tours operating in at least one of its parks since January of 1987. Starting in 2010, Walt Disney Imagineering had been working with Lucasfilm on this incredibly deep dive on all of Star Wars canon to get ready for Star Tours The Adventure Continues. That's right, because didn't they, didn't they they actually adjusted what was in canon and what wasn't, right? Yeah, once they once they acquired Star Wars. All right, so th- these are guys who had a ridiculously deep knowledge of the material and yet it still takes yeah. them three years and six months to come up with a concept for Galaxy's Edge. That's a year and three months longer than it took the Imagineers to come up with the concept for Pandora, the world of Avatar. So again, Len, Fair enough. each time yeah. it's getting longer, each time it's getting more involved, which is making Bob Chapek crazy. Yeah. I was saying, wait, if they ever, if they ever decide on uh, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> it'll be literally as long as the Lord of the Rings took to produce the movies. Oh, God, yeah. 15 years. Yeah. Remember, Bob Chapek comes out of consumer products. So this is a guy who understands that, for example, when you're bringing a toy to market, you know, the one that's based on an upcoming Disney film, it's like, that's a years-long project. You have to meet with the animators and who in turn have to hand off model sheets to designers and then you have to yeah. actually design the toy and then you have to send it overseas back to be built. Yeah. And then, of course, you literally have to put it on the slow boat from China back to the States before it hits their shelves. So... He understands that these things take time. What's making him crazy, again, is why is it taking longer, especially when it comes to something like Star Wars, where, guys, we've been working with this since 87. Why did this take this long? And why is it that Universal can do this so much faster and for less money? I mean, Chapek's like, they closed Jaws the Ride on January 2nd, 2012. They had yeah. the entire land of Diagon Alley open in July of 2014. That's two and a half years land. And I think it was, what, $350 million? I mean, it was a fraction of what Disney supposedly spent on these things. But, but again, if, you're, if, you're not, if your projects don't take as long, you're not, typically not going to be as, as costly either. Theme park things are pricey. I mean, for example, depending on who you talk to, Diagon Alley is, is $350 or it's $400 million dollars. That opened late as well. It was originally supposed to soft open in May, be opened by mid-June, but they had the very same issues that Disney had. They, you know, It was a very wet spring, and it was hard to, yeah. to work during that. But they got two lands and a transportation system. And again, Diagon Alley's is 20 acres. Hogsmeade is 20 acres. They got 40 acres 
of highly themed immersive lands lens it combined it and if we go with the higher cost because hogsmeade originally cost 170 they got all that for 570 million dollars whereas disney at this point will admit that galaxy's edge that they each cost 600 million dollars a piece but you and i both know that number is headed north yeah they're under tremendous pressure to try to get rise of the resistance open in fact i, I was just told this past weekend about the initial plan, Len, was, mm-hmm. okay, if we can't have it ready for opening, can we have Anaheim's version of Rise of the Resistance open in time for the D23 Expo, which was August, or is August 20th to the 25th, with the notion that at least then our most passionate fans will be able to experience this thing while they're in town, and they can then go home and evangelize about this e E-ticket oh, plus, yeah. but... That's a, that would be a draw. That would, but, but that ain't happening now. So would the Easter Bunny. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this is particularly becoming a question now, or a problem now, again, on, on the very thing you were talking about, about the incredibly low attendance at Disneyland and at Galaxy's Edge. Yeah, they, they're giving these things taking so long mm-hmm. and costing so much money to get low attendance afterwards is not good, no, no, right? No. And the Imagineers are quick to point, well, look, just in the past couple of months, you know, you've had Volcano Bay having electrical issues, and more to the point, you have Hagrid, which is open, and yes, it's gotten wonderful reviews, but they can't get the thing open before noon because they opened it and they're still having operational issues. Oh, yeah. I was uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I was like, I mean, Universal gets things done very fast, mm-hmm. but the rides often don't open working 100% of the time. And I said, if they were, if, if Universal's, ride builders were OBGYNs, every baby they delivered would be a preemie. <laughs> but if you think about you think about Gring I mean Gringuts yep. didn't wasn't ready to open. Nope. Volcano Bay nope. wasn't ready to open. Mm-hmm. Hagrid's wasn't ready to open. Mm-hmm. I mean it's just they open rides before they're ready, before they're fully operational for an entire park day mm-hmm. on a consistent basis. Yeah. The Hagrid's supposedly cost three hundred million dollars to make. But on the other hand, it's eminently franchisable. there's already evidently talk of creating versions of this attraction in the proximities of the Wizarding Worlds of Harry Potter that are built at Universal Studios Hollywood and Universal Studios Japan. And I'm told that it's also considered a phase two attraction for the uh, Universal Studios Beijing, which is still on track for a spring 2021 opening. Mm -hmm. Even as this is going on, Universal is looking at what's going on with Harry Potter and saying the Fantastic Beasts movie that came out last November, the the second in a series of five, it did about three quarters of the business of the first film, which was released in November of 2016. That's not bad, though, still. Well, it it was concerning enough that the executives at Warner Brothers, the third film in the series was supposed to actually come out in November of 2020. And they have pushed back the startup production. Now that film may arrive in theaters in November of 2021. And that gives Warner Brothers time to consider whether or not they need to recast Johnny Depp as the central villain of this series. Uh. That may be the problem. Then you factor in what literally happened within the past two weeks. There was that launch of that augmented reality mobile game harry potter wizards unite this is a pokemon go for uh, for harry potter oh, yeah. i haven't seen much about yeah, this see that and it, really? it's interesting you bring up pokemon go because the first 24 hours that that was available in june of 2016 7.5 million people signed up 
for Harry Potter Wizards Unite first 24 hours, Len, only 400,000 people. Oh, oops. From Universal's point of view, that's like, maybe we need to take a foot off the gas in regard to the Harry Potter stuff. And I don't know if you've seen any of the footage from, they just literally opened the redo of the Jurassic Park ride now it's jurassic world or no just uh, just just reopened yesterday yep. yeah haven't had a chance to see it yet. but what people have been doing while they're there seeing this amazing redo of this ride is they've also been taking pictures down into the construction site where the first nintendo rides are being built for that park Ooh, yeah and on disney's side of the fence there's a lot of interesting second guessing now that there's now for example smugglers run one mm-hmm. of the points that people get particularly frustrated at at imagineering is we were told to base this ride on the can't miss hit movie Solo, a Star Wars story. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and that's the thing, yeah. you know, that that's you know, you'd already committed to this ride system. You already committed to this experience, and you're looking over your shoulder at that, you know, what happened with that film. I still think the film was good. I, I, I'm in a, I know it's a minority film. opinion. I I thought it was enjoyable. But at the same time, you're you're in this weird situation where, for whatever reason, that didn't connect and. That was supposed to be gas in the tank. Like, oh my God, just like in that movie, I'm going to get to fly the Millennium Falcon. All right. Okay. Chapek is, again, it's this whole notion of it's taking longer, guys, and these things are costing more, and we have real competition these days. And in fact, you know how Universal, when Islands of Adventure opened back in 99, they had their amazing Spider-Man ride, and now we're going to get... DC is going to get its Spider-Man, Toy Story Mania-inspired experience in late 2020, yeah. early 2021. We have this Fox deal, $71.4 billion that the, the company wants to start making money back on. And that means walking these things back out into the parks. And I'm almost hesitant to put this out here, but remember, we Universal opened its Simpsons ride in May of 2008. Was it that long ago? Yeah. Yes, it was. That, okay. You know, that's it. Yeah. The Florida one opened, and then Fast Food Avenue opened like three years later, and then we get the whole Simpsons development in Hollywood. But there have now been conversations about, should we be doing something with the Simpsons in the Disney theme parks? And if so, where? Do you think that's timely? I mean, do you think, do you think that kids understand the Simpsons? It's not really anything about timely Len? there is just right now this tremendous pressure from the top of the company to the effect of again we're you're 74.1 or 71.4 in the hole in regard yeah. to fox and we got to start getting this money back and one of those we're going to get that money back is to bring these characters into parks it would be unusual to see bart simpson in a disney theme park i that's, i totally that, there's a juxtaposition there that uh that i can't wrap my head around but on the other hand remember this is disney parks and resorts is an international operation oh, right yeah okay <laughs> so, so jim somewhere somewhere this summer mm. there's a walt disney imaginary intern who's just been asked this question how do you say eat my shorts in cantonese <laughs> Well, I just want to remind people that when you go to Hong Kong Disneyland in October at their Halloween event, they actually do horror-themed mazes, universal-level horror-themed mazes behind Main Street. Oh, for the Simpsons Halloween specials, that would be amazing. You know, just Okay, all right. I I, I take back what I said. If they did it as a Halloween, if they did it as a Halloween maze... 
Treehouse of Horror, you know, episode 45, whatever, that would probably be magical. Yeah, I can see that. So from the top down in Imagineering, it's, you know, everyone agrees that Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is beautiful, amazingly themed, a wonderful setting, but it's just this whole notion of it cost us this much and this long to get here, and can't we yeah. do better? Makes sense. All right, Jim, thanks for uh, thanks for that update. All right, for, uh, for Bandcamp subscribers, stay tuned for the story of me and my condemned apartment. For everyone else, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. On next week's show, I'll talk about my stay at the new Grandestino Tower at Cornado Springs. Also, we sent a Kylo Ren cupcake to a food testing lab to see how many calories are in one, and we'll talk all about that next week. In the meantime, for more of us, head on over to the DisneyDish.BandCamp.com site, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's my odds-on favorite at next week's raspberry pie-eating competition at the Northwest Raspberry Festival in Linden, Washington. Don't forget to go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.